I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. If you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. I never talked about it with anybody. The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret. If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick, literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. You realize you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's interview from 2014 is about parenting a child with high-functioning autism. My guest is Ellen Jennings, a minister in Washington, D.C., and the mother of three boys. We'll be talking about her oldest son, Nicholas. I wanted to air this interview again because rates of autism have gone up rapidly since the 1980s. Back then, one in every 2,000 children was diagnosed with autism. Today, according to the Centers for Disease Control, one in 68 children is diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. And that number is even higher if you look only at boys, where the incidence is now one in 42. More and more parents are facing the challenges Ellen faced, of worrying something is wrong, getting a diagnosis, and then advocating again and again for her child to get the services he needs. Here's my conversation with Ellen Jennings. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Ellen. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to sort of start at the beginning. When in Nicholas's life did you start wondering if something might be a little bit different? Sure. Well, like many kids on the spectrum, Nicholas was very late developing um, in terms of verbal language. And so, you know, we kept being told by the pediatrician that he was, quote, unquote, within the range of normal, which, of course, every parent wants to hear. And um, however, unfortunately, that meant that he did not get the early intervention services that would have really helped him prior to the age of three. Um, but Nicholas also has a seizure disorder, which is not uncommon um, in children on the autism spectrum. And so between the ages of 18 months and two years, when he was, of course, walking, we would see him sort of stop and just kind of shake a little bit. And, um, you know, at first we just thought, okay, he's a toddler, he's sort of getting his balance, he's learning to walk. But then, of course, we have medical professionals in our extended family who let us know that, in fact, that was not normal. There was something neurologically going on. And so right after his second birthday, we started taking him to a pediatric neurologist. And unfortunately, that's actually one of the worst parts of our stories because um, while we saw an acclaimed person, um, this was not a person who was interested in listening to the mother. And um, I was literally told that I was an over-anxious parent. And so we spent nine months trying to get Nicholas diagnosed with his seizure disorder. And finally, my parents who live in Montana and my father, who's a medical doctor, said we are setting up um, an evaluation for you here. This is ridiculous. 
and we took him in, and we actually had a little video clip of sort of various moments when we thought he was seizing. And my mother is in the background on the video saying, oh, well, that's a little one. And the doctor said, that's a little one? And so they did an EEG, and it turned out that he was literally seizing every couple of minutes. And she said, I can't believe that this child is walking and talking at all, given what's going on in his brain. And so that's actually a wonderful description of who Nicholas is. He's unbelievably resilient. And the way that he compensates for his neurological challenges is really inspiring. But those nine months made his later challenges more difficult because he lost nine months of developmental opportunities because of the constant seizing. Ellen, plus I'm just imagining here you are, you're worried because you know that something is not right. And then to be told, to be blamed and told that you are an over-anxious mother as if this is your neurosis, it's so, it's humiliating and so insulting right when you actually needed help. It was. It was it was it was humiliating and insulting and it sort of, you know, harks back to the days not so long ago when autism was blamed on quote unquote refrigerator mothers. And, you know, so while I was not being told I had caused my child's autism, thank God, um, I was being told that there was nothing really wrong. It was all in my head. <laughs> so, no, exactly. And of course, you know, we all have we're all vulnerable to self doubt. So I'm guessing mm-hmm. like part of you must have been like what if he's right? You know, you're a first-time mother, right? This is your first child. Of course. And again, you want to be told that your kid is okay. So there was a part of me that was thinking, okay, good. He says there's nothing wrong with my child. And yet that gut part of me saying, but that's not true. There is something wrong. And so explain, explain the concept of the refrigerator mother. So in the 60s, the psychological theory was that um, mothers who were emotionally cold or frigid and therefore could not connect adequately with their baby would cause the child to become autistic, meaning go into their own world and not relate or connect with other human beings. Needless to say, you know, I mean, that's just such a horrible thing to do with to a mother who has a child with a disability and is already struggling so much dealing with this child and trying to figure out, you know, how to help this child and then to be told that, in fact, you caused it. I, I mean, honestly, I can't even imagine what those women went through. It feels like such a tragic part of the history of psychiatry of my field is mother, yeah. mother blaming, yeah. you know, right at people's most vulnerable moments. So, Ellen, let, let's keep going then. So your son gets diagnosed, and I presume he was put on seizure medication at that point. Correct, immediately. But then how did it move from being, okay, he has a seizure disorder to actually there's more going on here. He actually has autism as well. Absolutely. No, and that was actually another very challenging journey. He was not actually diagnosed with autism until he was eight years old. So... You know, as you know, many people on the spectrum are of, you know, average range intelligence. Now, I'm not talking about rocket science in my son's case. He is not a savant in any area. However, he does have, in all areas, low average to average intelligence. But because of his severe communication disorder and, in his case, learning disabilities, that's often masked. And so he's been very confusing to diagnosticians who, on the one hand, 
some wanted to look at those average intelligence scores and say, for instance, when he was three years old, oh, send him to Montessori. That will be perfect for him. You know, and then others wanted to focus just on the disability. And in fact, neither was really appropriate. It needed a both-and approach. So when he was three years old, we actually sent him to a Montessori preschool And things went okay for a couple of months. Um, You know, he was sort of able to just kind of go along with the routine. But we were suddenly and abruptly called into the director's office and told that they couldn't serve our son. I mean, literally, we were asked to pull him that day. That day? Oh, my gosh. You know, both of you work, have jobs, and don't have other child care arrangements. Exactly. Exactly. And so I panicked, of course, um, mostly because I thought, you know, I mean, mostly the panic was, was about, oh, my gosh, there, there really is something wrong. I mean, he, they're telling me my child can't function in a normal preschool. And um, Nick had been getting speech therapy from a person who had told me a little bit about one fabulous special education preschool teacher. Now, mind you, this is all I knew. I knew that there was a wonderful preschool teacher named Johnny, a woman, and I knew where she taught. All right, so in my panic... I drove straight from the Montessori school to the building where I knew this teacher taught and went straight to her classroom and knocked on the door. (laughs) And she opened the door and I said, are you Johnny? And she said, yes. And I burst into tears and I said, my son just got kicked out of Montessori preschool. What do I do? Oh, Ellen. (laughs) And she sort of looked at me like, okay, um, you want to tell me more? And, you know, so I just gave her the thumbnail sketch, and she said, okay, this is who you need to call. You need to get an intake. He's going to need to have an IEP. All of these terms I had never heard before. Yes, and what is an IEP? So an IEP is an individualized education program, and it's the legal document that lists the goals and objectives for that child. And, um, you know, she gave me the she gave me the phone number and the people to contact. And I called them that afternoon and, you know, set up the intake. And he ended up in Johnny's classroom. And it was a classroom for more severely disabled children. But it was perfect because Nick had just come out of a scenario where he was always last. And in fact, he had even said to me, and he's never said this thing since, thank God, but he had even said to me as a little three-and-a-half-year-old in the car coming home from Montessori preschool, I'm a loser, hmm. which, you know, I mean, you can imagine how I emotionally respond to that, right. to that inside. It's like a knife in your heart, right? And, um, and so he was suddenly in this classroom where he was the really competent little boy, And it was perfect for him. I mean, you know, I never would have known to choose it, but Johnny was amazing. And that was really the turning point for us, you know, in terms of my really understanding what it was going to require in, you know, advocating for my child. Um, You know, that was sort of the start of my journey of understanding that it was going to be my job to make that happen. It's such a great story, Ellen, that you drove across town and just showed up at her classroom <laughs> and actually made it work. I mean, I can see that like sort of set the groundwork for how it was going to be, or at least how you were going to approach things. Yep. I was reading everything I could get my hands on, on kids with special needs. And and honestly, at that time, the Barnes & Noble section on kids with special needs was like one shelf. So you could actually read everything that was available. Um, And the reason that I 
went in the autism direction. And of course, you know, many parents are resistant to that diagnosis. But in my case, everything that I read about approaches that worked with kids on the autism spectrum were approaches that worked for my son. And I thought, if the therapy fits, chances are the diagnosis is. And can, give me and, some example and, of what you mean by that, um, So kids on the autism spectrum, oftentimes they're rather rigid in terms of their thought processes, and so it can be difficult for them to switch gears in terms of what they're thinking about. It can be difficult for them to switch gears in terms of moving from one activity to another. Um, if they have an expectation about the way the day is going to go and it changes, that can be excruciating for them. You know, I mean, it can look like from an outsider's point of view that this is just, you know, a spoiled child. In fact, it is neurologically causing them pain. They, their whole body was relying on that schedule the way they thought it was going to be, and suddenly it changes, and it just throws them off completely. So what I had realized um, was that for Nicholas, um, creating, I mean, literally at that point, I didn't know about all these computer programs, board maker, et cetera, you know, that you could print out pictures of things and make schedules. I was literally hand drawing, you know, little pictures for him of what our schedule would be, making sure that I always let him know in advance what was happening, let him know as soon as possible if there was going to be any change that was occurring. Um, you know, but but that being said, you know, I, I knew so little at that point. I mean, we did have a lot of behavior problems at that time. You know, I mean, he, like many kids on the spectrum, um, was very soothed by watching certain TV programs or viewing certain videos, playing certain computer games. And so, you know, trying to disengage him was really challenging. You know, we had a lot of temper tantrums. Um, he never had what I would call elopement in the sense that he was sort of escaping outside and, you know, running off, thank God. But within the house, I mean, chasing him down to try to get him dressed in the morning. You know, I mean, there were just a lot of age-inappropriate behaviors because I'm talking about an eight-year-old that I was having to chase down and get dressed in the morning. Yeah. Um, so uh, we took him to Children's National Medical Center. He went through the whole gauntlet of tests and was ultimately diagnosed with high-functioning autism. And um, they were just starting a, an experimental social skills group. And, in fact, Nick wasn't exactly the demo they were looking for, but Nick never is. I mean, honestly, he's always the gray area kid, even within an autism group. So, you know, lucky us, lucky him. Um, but he, so he started the social skills group and, in fact, met the young man, who, young man now, they're both young men now, um, who would be his best friend for about 10 years. Mm. Um, and... This young man, little boy at that point, was very different from Nicholas. He was much more of an Asperger's kid, meaning that he was very verbal. Um, he he actually had some savant um, intellectual areas, um, you know, an excellent mathematician. In fact, he's now at college. So his trajectory has been very different from Nick um, because, as I said, Nicholas has some fairly profound learning disabilities. But it was a, a place where, for the first time, Nick was kind of meeting other kids on the same planet. And, in fact, this other little boy, at one point when they were both teenagers, his mom said to him, why do you love getting together with Nick? And he looked at his mom and he said, because Nicky understands me, which I think is really touching. It's so touching, and I imagine for you, especially this 
it gives you a whole other window into Nick as being a, a boy who's capable of being so understanding. I mean, it speaks to his strength. Even well, yeah, like and and it's interesting because I'm. I mean, I Nicholas is not. You know, he lacks perspective taking, which many individuals on the autism spectrum do. Meaning, he has a very difficult time putting himself in somebody else's shoes, imagining what they might be thinking, certainly imagining what they might be feeling. So, I don't think it's so much that Ben, this other boy, felt a um, you know an amazing sense of empathy from Nick. I think it's more that the way Nick's brain worked and the ways in which they communicated with each other, you know, these sort of fantasy worlds that they would create with one another, that was not something that this other boy experienced with other kids in his life. You know, they weren't able to go there with him. Got it. I'm trying to picture Nicholas at eight, and I'm, I, I wondered if you could even maybe tell me a story of how he was at that time that kind of would give me a sense of, you know, what it was like to be with him. I mean, you describe having to chase him around to get his clothes on. Are there other stories that will just help me get a sense of of what it was like? Sure. I mean, you'd probably get better stories from my extended family because, of course, I was in it so much that I, you know, honestly, I had very little perspective on it. Um, And in fact, at that period of time, it was quite difficult with my extended family because even though they they did intellectually understand that he had a disability, um, so many of the behaviors just look like an undisciplined child. I actually at that point in time felt quite judged, and it was very, very hard. That has changed significantly over the years, and I'm actually incredibly grateful for the support that my extended family has given us. Um, but at that point in time, you know, we were all learning, and it was it was really hard. So, you know, we, we were doing everything for him just to sort of cope and make life easier and not have every activity be a struggle. Right. And so I can only imagine, because I think it's sort of every mother's nightmare to have their in-laws, you know, (laughs) give them the message that you are a bad mother. Yeah. And so much of what you're describing looks like this is a spoiled, overindulged child. Exactly. So I can imagine it was hell because it was a really challenging dealing with him, but then also this kind of judgment and the shame that comes with it. Um, exactly. So tell me a little bit, because I know at some point you actually did find a behavioral, what's the, yes. what's the actual term for it? Yes. So when Nick got diagnosed with high-functioning autism at Children's Hospital, um, they actually gave us the name of a behavior specialist at that time, Robin Allen, and she is an incredible behavior specialist. And um, one of the amazing things about her, and that's very unusual, is that she comes into the home to do observations, because how do you really understand what's going on with a child unless you observe what's going on in that child's environment? So she does an extensive observation. And one of the very simple changes that she suggested to us immediately is the room that had the computer in it was at that time for us right next to our dining room. And there was a door between the two. And Nicholas was constantly getting up from the table at mealtime and running into that room. And so she said, now why is Nicholas's place at the table the one closest to that door? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that and, and why does that door not lock? <laughs> really concrete, right. specific simple things. environmental changes that, you know, can make a world of difference. Everything from, okay, you know, if he's going to need to transition in five minutes, 
set a timer, you know, and um, when the timer goes, you know, he'll see you set the timer. Um, you can even have a visual timer, and when that goes off, it's time. If he gets off the activity at that time, then he gets a token for his token board. When you get three tokens, you get a preferred you know, whatever it might be, amount of screen time, um, some little token toy, what have you. Um, having those concrete and tangible rewards for, you know, doing what we call in social skills world expected behaviors is actually really critical. And so, you know, and I had to get over my own little, trust me, my own little parenting hurdles of, well, that's not how I was planning to parent, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I was planning to have it all be about internal motivation and, right, exactly. and so forth, you know, but that's not how my child's brain works. And Dr. Robin helped me to understand that it wasn't about me, it was about Nick. But, you know, that's part, that's part of the grief and loss, and we haven't talked about that. But, you know, you have certain expectations of who your child's going to be. You have certain expectations of who you're going to be as a parent, what your philosophy is going to be. And you know what? A lot of those things have to be let go because they're not relevant to what you actually have. That must have been such a process, and it must have – I mean, I'm imagining even today, Nicholas is 19 – his future probably looks very different than what you had thought when you were pregnant. I'm imagining that that no grief question. and loss is sort of an ongoing thing. It wasn't like a one-shot deal. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's a constant both and. On the one hand, you really have to acknowledge what it is you've lost and what expectations you've had to let go of and to grieve those because they're real. You know, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. We all have expectations, and we all have dreams, and, you know, they don't always come true in the way that we thought that they would or hoped that they would. On the other hand, you know, Nicholas is one of the happiest people I know. And now I'm not saying that that is true for every child on the autism spectrum, but in Nicholas's case, it is true. And what an amazing thing. I mean, most parents, that's the number one thing we hope for for our child is that they'll be happy in the world. And, you know, Nick is. So, you know, it is. It's that constant sort of readjustment of, you know, what you thought might be and what actually is and, you know, ideally embracing what is. It's so great to hear that he's happy. How do you see it? How do you know, Ellen? He, I, I mean, honestly, I think part of it has to do with what one could describe as his disability of not having a very large capacity for introspection. So whereas, you know, somebody who had more of a capacity for introspection, including some teenagers on the autism spectrum, um, might realize that they don't have friends in the typical sense of the word, Nicholas doesn't realize that. Um, he sees... All of his communities, whether that's school or family or church or therapists or D&D, &D, Dungeons and Dragons that he goes to one afternoon a week at the rec center, he sees all those communities as friends. And so, you know, who am I to tell him that's not typical? Right. It really, it's such a useful way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Don't mess with it. So, Ellen, take me, I want to jump ahead I can imagine that for you and your husband, that the question of whether he'll be able to live independently, where are you at with that? Is that something you worry about? Is that something you already have a sense of? I mean, I do have a sense of it. And um, any individuals who have developmental disabilities, including um, folks on the autism spectrum, they keep developing. 
you know what I mean? It's not like you get to 21 and they're an adult and, okay, this is who they are. Um, we've got to make a decision for the rest of their lives. I mean, it's perfectly possible that a young person who at 21 is absolutely not ready to live independently at age 30 or even at age 40 could possibly be more independent. So, you know, there's, there's definitely not sort of a, a final point ever. Having said that, what I know about my son is that there are certain things about his profile that make it unlikely he will be able to live completely independently. There, there are kids on the spectrum who are so hypersensitive to noise, to touch, to smell, etc., that they are sort of constantly aroused. Nicholas is so under-aroused by sensory stimulation that a fire alarm can go off and he just keeps reading. You know, the shower can be too hot, and he doesn't realize it. Uh, he can have a um, very bad rash on his body, and he tells nobody until he has scratched it so hard that he's caused a skin infection. So he will need some sort of supervision is my gut feeling. It's not my desire, but I think that that's truth. As one transition specialist, um, transition is the term used for that period of time, sort of between the end of high school and whatever is going to happen next for um, a student with disabilities. As one transition specialist said to him, you know, we, we figure out what it is that he's going to need, and then we make him as independent as possible in that context. So if Nicholas needs to use Metro Access, meaning the van that comes to the door to pick him up, he's the one who looks up the schedule, he's the one who makes the phone call, he's the one who schedules it, you know, so that he's taking responsibility for that transportation, even though the transportation itself is accommodating a disability of his. So Ellen, I'm aware that this is very much an ongoing process and that your son is only 19 and that you have a lot of years ahead. As you look forward, you know, what are the things that, that do give you hope as you anticipate the challenges that are ahead for you? I think what gives me hope and, and what has always given me hope are the people who love my son because I'm really clear, and this is, of course, also one of my greatest fears, I'm clear that, you know, presumably he is going to outlive me. I won't always be here to handle everything for him. And so, you know, between extended family, between um, community, friends, um, and frankly, public services, I am going to rely on other people to be there for him. And so I think that that's why I'm most excited about this new school opportunity that it looks like Nicholas is going to be able to have. The school that we're looking at for him is a true community. The whole idea is to get the students accustomed to all of the daily living skills and how their classes and their academic subjects relate to what you actually do in the real world. And so to think of him as part of a school community, a small school community where everyone will know who he is, everybody will be thinking about what's going to happen next for him, and in fact will be working with me on what's going to be happening next for him just feels so safe. Um, I want that surrounding us. 
we need a lot of support. We need a lot of community. We need people who are going to be there for him um, beyond, you know, my husband and me. Ellen, thank you so much for being my guest on C-Space Radio. As I listen to you, I'm so aware of how lucky Nicholas is to have had you as his mom. And um, it's just very moving to me to, to hear all the ways that you've thought about him, fought for him. It's very inspiring. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Anne. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it immensely. That was my 2014 interview with Ellen Jennings. If you were looking for resources to help your own child or a family you know who has a child with autism, Ellen recommends three things that have helped her tremendously. The first is the website autismspeaks.org, which is filled with information and resources. And she also recommends two books, School Success for Kids with High-Functioning Autism, which is for parents, and a book for parents and kids to read together, called The Survival Guide for Kids with Autism Spectrum Disorders and Their Parents. There are links to those resources on our website. When this interview first aired, it was part of a series of interviews about parenting kids with autism spectrum disorders. If you want to hear more of the shows from that series or any of our other past shows about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.